we will continue through the book of uh, Titus. This will be the next to the last um, sermon in this series. It's been good, um, hopefully for us. I know personally it's been good for me to walk through the book of Titus. And uh, the topic this morning is going to be the gospel and good works, part one. The gospel and good works, part one. Before we get started, let me pray for us one more time. Lord Jesus, it truly is a privilege to to be here this morning. Uh, We are here because of um, your divine providence this morning. That is, every single one of us, Lord, has a divine appointment with you today. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, God, to hear your voice. Lord Jesus, you said that my sheep hear my voice. And so this morning we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Help us to take these truths in the scripture and know in our hearts that they're not just idle truths, that it's not just some old letter that somebody wrote 2,000 years ago, but that it's a living and abiding word of God and that you have something to say to us today. And so, God, I pray, as Jesus prayed all those years ago, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So help us today, God, be conformed into the divine image by what you would say to your servant Paul, to his young friend Titus. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you do have a Bible, you can turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And we'll be uh, reading through chapter 3, verse 7. So what we've seen so far in this book is that we have Paul exhorting and charging Timothy to raise the bar for the Cretan Christians. Okay? As we saw in chapter 1, there were false teachers who who not only misunderstood the gospel with respect to Judaism, but they also seemed to be more Cretan than they were Christian. And that's not a compliment. And so what they needed then was strong, godly leadership to supplant the worldliness and poor theology of their current leaders. So that's what Paul does is he leaves Titus behind in Crete to appoint elders, as he talks about there. And then in chapter 2, Paul outlines what the Christian life should look like, right? Because we have these Cretan Christians who in many ways, are living contrary to the gospel. And Paul is just, frankly, he's just not going to have that. If you're going to be a professing believer of Jesus Christ, if you're going to say that the Holy Spirit of God has come upon you and changed you and given, made you an heir of eternal life, then you just can't live the life the same way you used to. And so Paul has something to say about that. And so he, we talked about what, what we call the Christian household code and what it looks like to follow Christ in different ages and different uh, sexes and different stations in life. Um, and so this is, and, and then as we close up this uh, book here, as we wrap up, as we um, get to chapter three here, he's just, he, he's continuing this theme because he's, he's keenly concerned about the gospel. And he knows that how we live as Christians says something about the gospel to the onlooking world. And so that's why he's so concerned about how these 
Cretan Christians are behaving. And so we have, we have more to say about that this morning as we talk about the gospel and good works. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Titus 2.15 through chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings this morning. Number one, the posture. Number two, the past. And number three, the power. The posture, the past, and the power. So first, we're going to look at the posture. What I'm talking about here is the posture that we are to have as Followers of Jesus Christ as we seek to live lives that honor Christ in a Cretan world. Okay? And so the first thing he tells Timothy there in 2.15, and this is right at the end of the household code there that he gives. He says there to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So notice there that Paul is giving Titus a lot of authority within the Cretan church. He is basically saying, Titus, I'm putting you there to help this church, to help establish this church. You have the authority to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You ever, yeah, you ever been disregarded? People just don't, don't want to listen to what you have to say? Well, this is what he's saying to Titus as the leader as the leader of the church in Crete. Don't let anyone disregard you. This is the firm hand of biblical authority that leaders can and must exercise at times, especially when there is unchecked worldliness in the church. We forget, we can forget how much we have absorbed anti-authoritarianism from our culture. And it's just sinful human nature and pride that, frankly, all of us chafe when someone points out something that we're doing wrong. It's just pride. That's, and it, we, we all experience it. Okay? But if we're going to follow Jesus, we know and understand that there is such thing as right and good proper authority within the home, within the government, within the church. And that the Bible says to trust and obey your leaders. To be a Submission isn't a problem for Christian for a Christian, because to be a Christian means you submit to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the model of this because when Jesus was in the garden, he didn't tell God, not thy will, but my will be done. 
Jesus Christ told the Father, not my will, but thine be done. So if we're going to be like Jesus in any meaningful sense whatsoever, we must be willing to submit to proper authority. Jesus is in charge of the church. Jesus leads the church, and he gets to say what his church looks like. If you don't believe me, go read the letters in the book of Revelation to the churches. Jesus cares about what's going on in his church. He's not just up there in the sky, just chilling out, singing tunes with angels. He walks among the lampstands, the Bible says. He is there with us, concerned about how we're honoring him and his gospel with our lives. Jesus said in his ministry that if salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot. And so part of Christian maturity, and which is supposed to create a healthy church culture, is one in which we can speak to one another lovingly, and, but also boldly to correct and challenge one another without taking undue offense. That's called maturity. It's called being an adult. It's called not taking everything personally. And yes, we'll receive criticism, and sometimes that criticism is just, and sometimes it's not. But maturity says, I'm going to listen to what they have to say, Wherever I can discern by God's grace and spirit that they are correct, I'm going to take it as a word from the Lord that I need to change. Because we all have spots where we need to change. And for Paul telling Titus to help this Cretan church, he's saying, if, let, do not let them disregard you because if they disregard you, they're disregarding Christ. So Paul continues uh, here with this posture that is to characterize believers there. And so, in 3.1, it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So this primarily has to, to do with the government. According to Scripture, this is very important. According to Scriptures, governments and authorities are put in place by God. That's what the Bible says. You don't like the government? Well, I'm sorry, but guess what? A lot of Christians throughout 2,000 years of church history, have had to live with a lot worse governments than ours. Just read a history book. So if you think you got it bad, you, don't, you haven't seen anything. Part of being a Christian is learning to submit to proper authority. Governments rise and fall according to the will of God. So insofar as we can obey the, and submit to the government without sinning, we should do it. Now, remember that Paul was speaking to Christians in Roman society. And there were seasons in Roman history where the, basically it was commanded that all the citizens worship the emperor as God. Well, that's a big problem if you're a Christian. So what are you going to do? Well, as a Christian, well, they couldn't. They couldn't do it. But see what that ends, but see, in the Roman mind, that was just part of being a good citizen. And so because of Christians' unwillingness to offer incense to the emperor in these pagan temples, okay, they would be labeled unjustly, but they would be labeled within the society as these rebellious, seditious citizens. But Paul is saying, they may slander you like that. They may, they, you, you may be labeled like that, but don't let your behavior justify that. We should be able to say to the government, my ultimate allegiance can and only will ever belong to God alone. And yet at the same time, 
my allegiance to God will, is only going to make me a better citizen, not a worse one. Which is why Christians, insofar as we are able, should obey the government and should be, in fact, the best citizens that we can be of the government. He also tells Christians there to be obedient. To be obedient. Again, we must submit to proper authorities in every sphere where they are found. God has established authority. Authority isn't bad. Authority, of course, can be abused. But just because something can be abused doesn't mean the thing in principle is bad. God has established authorities in different spheres. And wherever the proper authority is found, we should obey it. Parents within the home. Officials in government. Elders in the church. We obey proper authority because we obey God. When the Bible says, honor your father and mother, if you dishonor your parents, you dishonor God. And so obedience to good authority isn't weakness, but it is strength. Again, as Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 5 says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Paul also says here that we must be ready for every good work. If you've read through the book of Titus before, if you've been following along closely through the series, you'll recognize that there's a heavy emphasis on this concept of good work. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul is critiquing those false teachers, right? And he says that they have rendered themselves, quote, unfit for any good work. And so in Paul's mind, that's, that's, that's wholly unfit because the whole point of being a Christian is to do good works. In verse, uh, in chapter two, verse seven, he tells Timothy, uh, Titus that he must be a model of good works. And then in chapter two, verse 14, just before the text that we read, it says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Paul, of course, is very concerned about good works because he's concerned that the, that, um, the, Cretan Christians' lives aren't living up to the calling of good works that they're supposed to be, and it's profaning the gospel to a lost and uh, unlooking world. Okay? So, good works are important for the Christian life, and Christians must be devoted to doing good. And we'll talk more about uh, the significance of good works later. Finally, Paul says, now this is a good, this is an important verse right here, I think. Uh, Verse 2. Paul says that Christians are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. I'm going to read that one more time. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's biblical commands. Biblical commands of God. There should be no such thing as a grumpy, rude, ill-tempered Christian. Just should not exist. You ever been around some people that are just generally unpleasant to be around? Don't be one of those people. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You should give life to your relationships, not suck life out of them. People should want to be around you, not because you're a yes man, not because you tell them everything you want to hear, but because they know you love them. 
and because because you because the Holy Spirit has put in your heart a joy that no circumstance can take away. We should be different. We should be kind. We should be gentle. We shouldn't fight. We shouldn't speak evil of people because the Holy Spirit has come into us. And notice, notice there that Paul doesn't say do all these things to the people that you like. All people. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. How much more to our brothers and sisters in the faith. So this is number one, the posture. The posture that we're to hold as Christians in a Cretan world. So number one, the posture. Number two, the past. And so again, verse three there begins with four. So he's given, he's given a basis. He's given a reason for why we should behave this way. And this is what he says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So he's saying we're to live like this because, because we used to be different. But see, that's the key. The whole key is the past tense. We were once not like that. We were once sinful. We were once different. We were once, he says, it's the past tense that is key. What did we used to be? And this is without exception, right? Because remember, the, the difference is in, Christ, in the Christian is not that we're better people, it's that we're forgiven people. And so our past is, just, is that, it, the difference is that it's the past. What were we used to be? All of us, without exception. We were like this. We were, Paul says, foolish. This, uh, this means foolish with respect to God. This was probably in Paul's mind is a verse like uh, Psalm 14.1. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. In the Old Testament... A fool was, in the Old Testament, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is the beginning of foolishness? Not fearing the Lord. And that, it only actually makes perfect sense, right? If, if you were made by an omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful God, and you exist by Him, through Him, and for Him, then the most foolish thing you could do with your life is live it as if He didn't exist. But that's what the majority of the world does today, is live their lives exactly how they would if God didn't exist. And the Bible calls that foolish. And that was us. That was me. That was me. That was you. We were, Paul says, disobedient. You'll notice again, there's an emphasis on obedience in this letter. Uh, if we can't obey proper authority that we can see, we'll never obey God whom we can't see. But now that we're in Christ, we're not disobedient anymore. We were, Paul said, led astray. That's who we were. This, this here, um, it, it, it can mean deceived, but it, it's talking about culpability for that deception. There is a culpable deception. The devil may tempt us. The devil may lie to us. But we don't have to believe him. 
So there, so yes, there's greater accountability for the person doing the deceiving to be sure. But at the same time, if we allow ourselves to be deceived, we are in fact culpable for that. Because we are responsible before God to know the truth and to not believe lies. And so, you know, it's just not going to work. You know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was blame shift. She made me do it. The devil made me do it. But God says, you knew better. Because I told you the truth. We were disobedient. We were led astray, but not anymore. Until when we recognize that Christ, you see, it's not until we recognize that Christ is better than our sin. When we recognize that Christ is better than our sin, until that happens, we're happy to believe lies. When you're, when you're foolish, disobedient, led astray, you, you're happy to believe, people are happy to believe lives that let them live however they want. And that's who we were. We were, Paul says, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We just, we just sang about that. We were enslaved. We were in slavery. We were in bondage. Jesus has delivered us from greater bondage than the bondage which Moses delivered the Israelites out of. At least the Israelites knew they were slaves. Before we came to know Jesus, we didn't even know we were slaves. Because we were enslaved by our sin. We were enslaved, Paul says, to passions and pleasures. And again, I just think this is a crucial, this is this biblical teaching is crucial to, to human self-conception and what it means to be human and to properly understand how our passions and desires fit into human nature. Yes, we are made, we are made as creatures to want things, to desire things, but here's the problem. Because of sin, our desires and our passions become misdirected. And they become aimed at wrong things. And so just because you want something doesn't mean that you should have it. Just because you desire something doesn't mean that it's a, right, it's a good desire. There's all kinds of people who desire to do bad things. A desire doesn't make a person... It's not that desire is inherently bad. It just depends on what the desire is directed at. And so God is saying that we, he is setting us free from our passion or misdirected passions and pleasures so that we can control them rather than they control us. You see, that's what's so deadly about sin is because you're doing it because you want to, not realizing it that you want to so bad that you can't stop yourself. You're not in control of yourself. So who's the master? It's not you. It's sin. And you don't even know it. C.S. Lewis had an interesting perspective on this. And I think he's absolutely right. But he said that the problem in reality is not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. He put it this way. A very famous quote of his. It says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. 
And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. He says our desires aren't too strong but too weak because we're satisfied with making filth of ourselves in the mud when God offers us something so much better. But we refuse it because we're content to play in the mud. That's who we were, thank God. And finally, Paul says, we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's that's it. We were just living in sin. We're just doing whatever we wanted to do, pursuing ourselves, getting mad about this, getting jealous about that. People not locking us there, us not locking them here. No, no, Paul's not, Paul's not saying that before Christ we were as bad as we could possibly be. Thank God, common grace restrains that. We're not as bad as we could possibly be. But we're still infinitely less than who we were made to be. Brokenness in our hearts. Brokenness in our relationships. No God and no hope. This is who we were. This is who we were. The past has given way to the present because of the power given us through Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the next one. The posture of the past, past, and finally, the power. The power. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, this is what Paul says. We ourselves used to be this way, and the, the Greek is emphatic. We ourselves. We used to be this. We used to be that way, but no more. Why? Because something happened. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's what happened. Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago as the very embodiment of the goodness and loving kindness of God. And He came into the world to do something miraculous, to save sinners, to change people from the inside out so that they could finally be who they were made to be all along. So despite all of our foolishness and disobedience and so on, God still came for us. And Paul, this is one of the most densest and richest passages about God's saving grace in the entire scripture. So it's worth looking at. It says here that the the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is... This is so crucial to the Christian life that we talk about all the time because it really is that important. We are not saved because we're good. Because we're not. We are saved because God is good. There is only one person in heaven who deserves to be there. That is called the grace of God. And even though 
We've had 2,000 years of preachers' best efforts, and most people, at least in the United States, have easy access to a Bible, either in print or online. The number of people who still think you can be good enough to get into heaven is absolutely staggering. So I don't know where we got this idea, but people think that somehow if you're better than Hitler, you get into heaven. What in the world makes us think that God's standard of righteousness is Hitler? Or even your best friend Joe. No apologies to any Joes in here. I mean, apologies to Joes in here. No apologies. We think that because we're better than a few people we know, we're good enough to get into heaven. Let me tell you something. When, when at the gate of heaven, if there is a bar to get in the gate of heaven, here's the bar. Jesus Christ. If you don't look like Jesus, you're not getting in. You say, Pastor, well then nobody can be saved. You're finally getting it. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And his disciples said, how is it then that anybody can be saved? And Jesus, the only thing he had to say to that is, with man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. The only reason anyone is saved is because of a miracle of God, and it is called grace. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, strong contrast there, but because of God's own mercy. Mercy of God. Because salvation cannot be achieved, it can only be received. Ephesians 2, 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared before him that we should work in them. So salvation comes first. It's a gift of God. And then when the gift is received we become recreated into the likeness of Christ to do good works. Grace precedes the works every time. John 1, 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you become a children of God, a child of God? Yes, I am. We just sang about it. How? You don't, you don't earn it, you receive it as a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the glory of grace. Grace does what we cannot do for ourselves. And see, properly understood, right? That's why, that's why people don't like it. Because grace looks you in the face and says, you can't. And in our human pride, we don't, we don't like being told we can't do something. Well, let me tell you something. I'm just going to tell you straight up like Jesus said it. You can't save yourself. And the sooner you come to grips with that, the better off you'll be. 
You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot be righteous in God's sight. We've already blown that. The only thing you can do, the only thing we can do is what? Just own it. And that's what, that's what the gospel calls everybody without exception to do. Is I, if you're going to come to Jesus, you have to own it. I've blown it. I'm a mess. I can't. But I think Jesus can. So I'm going to turn to him who can because I can't. That's what grace demands of us. That's what grace does. Let's be honest, folks. God, God wasn't looking down at 15-year-old Chad Henley and thinking, my lands, I need him on my team. God was not thinking that, I can assure you. God was looking down at 15-year-old Chad Henley and said, my goodness, what a hot mess. I'm coming for him. It's a gift that cannot be earned, but only received through faith in Jesus Christ. We, Paul continues, he says, we are saved by God's mercy. We're saved by God's sheer mercy, but how? There's a mechanism. How? He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? There's some debate, but I feel quite strongly that what it means, very simply, is that God saved us by a supernatural act. It's an act of divine fiat. It's God reaching down and washing us through regeneration. Regeneration is just a fancy word meaning to, to make new. It's the synonym to renewal there. The word in the Greek literally is, again, birth put together. I'll let you figure that one out. But it means to make new. And we are saved, Paul says, by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is the act of God washing us, of God making us new. When God makes you new, He washes you. He internally cleanses you. That is what happens when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. By definition, a Christian is not somebody who goes to church. It's a good thing to go to church. doesn't make you a Christian. By definition... A, a Christian is not someone who has these certain kinds of behaviors. Yes, there are behaviors that characterize Christianity, but that, by definition, is not what makes a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is somebody who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. That is a Christian. That is how you know that you're a Christian. You've been born again, as Jesus said, by the Spirit of God. God makes you new. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual work. 
God has a Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes into our lives and he does his internal work of renovation. I replaced an ancient sliding glass door with double French doors this week with the help of my great father-in-law. And uh, I literally watch YouTube videos and hope the house don't burn down. I, I actually think it looks pretty good. You can come and see and judge for yourself. Renovation is hard work. But let me tell you something. If God's spirit is in you, there's going to be some renovation. And he's going to start tearing stuff out and put new stuff in. You better buckle up. But here's the thing. If God's spirit is in you, that is happening. It has to be happening because that's what a Christian is. It's someone who is being renewed by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus said on that fateful night to Nicodemus, John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He can't. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you're just, if all I am is flesh, that's all I am. We're all born in the flesh, but not everyone's born of the Spirit. If, I, if all I have is flesh, then all I am is flesh. And it's not until the Spirit births me that I now have the Spirit. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit's work. You can't see the Spirit moving. But guess what? When the, You can't see the Spirit itself, but when the Spirit is moving, you can see the motion. When the Spirit of God really is in someone's heart, you can see stuff moving around. You can't see the Spirit, but you can see His effects in someone's life. But if there are no effects, there's no movement of the Spirit. This, this, uh, the word, as I mentioned, that Paul uses for regeneration literally means again birth. So it's not the same words that Jesus used here, but the idea is the same. We must be born again. We cannot be saved unless we're born again. It's a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of the ancient promise of God. Because remember, in the Old Testament, what was Israel's great problem. It is that they had the law, they had the promises, they had the covenants, but they couldn't keep it. Why? Because something was still broken in here. They needed something more than just laws. They needed a new heart. And that's what was prophesied. Ezekiel, one of the the, the exilic prophets when the last. And this is what he prophesied, Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. Washing of regeneration. Okay? And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. 
and and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What did Paul say? I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. When God's spirit is in you, he changes you so that you obey God. So again, when God gives you a new heart, your life will change. We are saved not by works, but we are saved to do good works. A person who is lost, what they need to hear is not act like this. What they need to hear is, let me introduce you to Jesus. Because listen, I don't have the power and I don't have the authority or the ability to persuade someone to live a certain way. But Jesus does. I can't tell you, you need to live like this. They don't have the power to do it anyway. But if I say, hey, let me introduce you to Jesus, and they meet Jesus, and they see Jesus for who he is, and the Spirit of God comes and begins to renovate their heart, when Jesus comes and tells them, that's got to change, oh, they'll listen. Because the sheep hear his voice. So Jesus can tell them. So that's the difference is if a person doesn't know Christ, we, they need Jesus. Finally here in verse 7 there, it says that so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So justification there. It's just another aspect of salvation. So regeneration is considered an aspect of salvation. God coming in to our hearts and changing us by His Spirit. Justification is another aspect of salvation. And it's the, it's the legal aspect, right? The legal aspect. So the legal part of our salvation is that legally we are guilty before God. We have violated His commands. If we sat at the judgment seat of God, a big guilty sign would be flashing over our heads. That's a big problem. Justification it comes from the same root as righteousness in the Greek. And so justification means being made right with God. Without justification, we would have to pay for our sins ourselves. If we've already wronged God, then we can't make it right. So justification, just like regeneration, just like salvation, is a gift. Of God. Just like regeneration is a gift of God, justification is a gift of God. We've already blown it. We can't go back and undo it. It's done. So the only way we can achieve a verdict of not guilty is if somehow the penalty is paid on our behalf. And a right standing is transferred over to us as a gift. Because we don't have it and we can't get it. And that's what justification is. You say, if the bar to get into heaven is Jesus Christ, how can a person be saved? This is how. When you get to the end of yourself and finally acknowledge that you can't, but God can, and you look away from yourself for the first time in your life and you look up to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, oh God, a sinner. Jesus sees that faith 
and he looks down and his right standing before God is transferred over to you. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. He gives it to you so that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, when God looks down at you, Jesus just steps in the way. He's with me. That's how you get into heaven. Jesus comes over to you and says, he's with me. It's the gift of God. So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, this is so dense. Heirs, children, children are heirs. God owns everything. Heirs of God means everything is ours because we're children of God according to the hope of eternal life. We become heirs of God, children of God according to the hope of eternal life. We become inheritors of all of God's riches and we'll get to enjoy it with Him forever. It's the gift of God. It's grace. And when that grace has come into your life, it'll change you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that just as you came after 15-year-old Chad Henley, you might come after somebody listening today who doesn't yet know you. I pray that you'd give them eyes of faith to see that you're better. You're better than any sin. You're better than any idea we could have of our own lives. You're better than our own passions and pleasures. You're better than anything this world has to offer. And I pray that they would come to the end of themselves and look up in faith to you and cry out for mercy. And that you would just reach down into their heart and pour the Holy Spirit in and save them and change them. And God, I pray that we, as your people, would walk by the Holy Spirit. That we would be Spirit-led people who are changed from the inside out. Because a new heart has been given to us as a gift from God. And I pray, God, that we would live worthy of the gospel. That we would be zealous, as the scripture says, for good works. So that when the world sees us, they might not agree with us, but they, they wouldn't be able to say that we're not doing good for you. Help us, God, be the church that you've called us to be. In Christ's name.